Well, good morning, church. If this is your first time visiting us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. My name is Marwan Abazilov, and I serve on staff here at Redeemer. My wife, Marcy, and I moved to Dubai uh, from the U.S. last year so that we could join Redeemer and that I could take part in the pastoral internship program here at Redeemer. Uh, we moved to the Middle East with the hope and desire to see a healthy church planted uh, specifically in Beirut, Lebanon, and so uh, we have that hope and plan to be sent out next year uh, to do that. One of the things that we're most thankful for here at Redeemer um, over this past year that our love for God's Word has grown. Uh, we're thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be able to bring God's Word to us this morning, and so uh, before we do that, let's pray together as we begin. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you have revealed yourself to us and speak to us through this book. We ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear your word and hearts to receive your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our sermon this morning is titled, The Words of Eternal Life. Uh, we'll be taking a look at some of the words that Jesus spoke during his time here on earth, uh, during his ministry. And in preparation for this morning, I spent some time, uh, many hours, considering the words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 6. As I studied his words, I began to consider the power of Christ's words. And then just the power of words in general. Many of you may be uh, familiar with the old English idiom, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words could never hurt me. Uh, it's not something that adults usually use. It's something you'd hear on primary school, on the playground. Uh, it's usually used as a form of defense uh, when the mean kid is trying to use their words to hurt you. Uh, you say that to them, saying that you could hurt me with sticks and stones, you could hurt me physically, but nothing you say could ever bother me. Is that true? No, I, I agree. Uh, I think many of us would agree that words are actually very powerful. I don't remember a time when I was ever hurt with sticks and stones, but oh, the times that someone has hurt me with their words. Words are powerful. Some words are so powerful that they're actually life-changing. I love you. I remember the first time my wife spoke those words to me. It was incredible. It changed my life. Will you marry me? Life-changing words. One of my personal favorites, and I, I'm certain that Pastor Dave would agree with me, your order is ready. <laughs> the excitement. This thing that I've been waiting to come to pass, and these words have brought them to pass. The words that we speak and hear spoken can be life-changing either in a positive way or negatively. I hate you. Never speak to me again. I don't love you anymore. You're fired. Words are powerful because they hold meaning and they elicit a response. There's no way that I can speak something to someone without them responding to my words. Even a non-response is a response in itself. You see, the words that we speak could be life-changing, but they could never give life. In our passage this morning, we're going to take a look at some of the words that Jesus spoke that claim to have power to give life. And not just life-giving words, but life everlasting. 
His words, like all words, elicit a response from us. The only difference is that His words are eternal. And when eternal words are spoken, our response is an eternal response. Our main point this morning is Jesus alone speaks the words of life. I'll repeat that again for us. Jesus alone speaks the words of life. And in our text, we're going to see the response of two groups of people. Those who are false disciples and those who are true disciples. Now, our text is found in the middle of a book that we're not currently studying. And actually falls at the end of the chapter in which it's found. And so, uh, it's very difficult for us to pick up any text that way. For us to truly understand it within its context. And so, allow me just a few minutes to catch us up on the Gospel of John as a way of summary in preparation for our text this morning. Jesus' ministry has begun. He's performed many miracles already. He's turned water into wine. He healed the centurion's son without even seeing him. He told the man who was lame to get up and walk. He spoke to the woman at the well. And she perceived him to be a prophet and the savior of the world. In John chapter 5, he taught the people that he is the eternal son of God, which makes him equal with God the Father. Many people began to follow him to see what sign, what miracle he performed. Next, and that brings us to chapter 6. Jesus performs another great sign and feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, there is something deeply symbolic about this sign that Jesus performs, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But sadly, the people who are there don't see it and they don't even care about it. When Dr. D.A. Carson was here in June, he taught something on the Gospel of John that I found very helpful. He said that John, who is the author of this book, never uses the word miracle to describe any of the miracles that Jesus performed. He used the word sign because each sign was significant. Significant. John tells us so at the end of his letter. He writes that if he would have recorded all the miracles that Jesus performed, all the books in the world could not contain them all. But the signs that he did record were written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, we would have life in his name. So after feeding the 5,000, he crosses over to Capernaum, and the people quickly follow him. They sought after Jesus, and they found him. And when they found Jesus, he calls them out and tells them that their motives for seeking him are wrong. In verse 26, he says, You're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They don't care much for who Jesus is or why he's doing the signs that he's doing. They just want to see another miracle. They want to eat some more food. Jesus tells them not to work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And now some of the people seem interested in this eternal life that Jesus spoke of. And so he tells them that the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. He's speaking of himself. And that by believing, that's how they'll have life. I can picture some of them huddled around saying, well, if he wants us to believe in him, then maybe he'll do another sign. Then one of them cries out, if you do a miracle, we'll believe in you. How about food? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. 
Why don't you feed us and then we'll believe in you? Jesus has started to explain something incredible to them. But sadly, they're still so focused on their bellies. They think that they can manipulate Jesus to create more food for them. And so Jesus' response to them for the next 30 or so verses is known as the bread of life discourse. It's only found in the Gospel of John. It's necessary for us to look at the words that Jesus spoke in these verses because our sermon is a response to the words that Christ spoke. And unless we understand his words, we won't understand the response of the disciples. Jesus reminds us, uh, sorry, Jesus reminds them of the words in Deuteronomy 8, and that's the scripture that we read this morning, that God made them to hunger in the wilderness and fed them with manna from heaven so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He tells them that they're hungering and working after things that don't matter eternally, and they will never satisfy. He's saying, you think a few loaves of bread will satisfy you? Come to me, for I am the bread of life. Believe in me, and I will give you all that you need, and you will be satisfied always. Jesus compares the manna that sustained the lives of the Hebrews in the wilderness with himself as the giver of eternal life. Jesus is pointing to himself as what they need. Jesus keeps with the food image says that unless they feed on his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life. Now look with me to verse 53. You can follow along in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen as well. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What does Jesus mean by all these things? His point is what he said in the beginning. Believe in him whom God has sent and you'll have eternal life. Jesus is saying that if you want life, it's in me and nowhere else. Just as Jesus lives because of the Father, in verse 57, we live because of Jesus. And just as our bodies have life because of food, if we feed on Christ, we have life in Him eternally. Simply and foundationally, Jesus' words are, believe in me and you will have life. But the imagery is beautiful and helpful for us. You see, Christ must be hungered after. Otherwise, one probably doesn't really understand their need for a Savior. Just as the deer pants for water, so our souls must long after Christ. A Christian must say, give me Christ or else I die. We can go to a beautiful feast, but meat looked upon will not nourish us. Meat fed upon will. That's what Jesus means by eat my flesh and drink my blood. We also understand that 
Christ must die so that we could feed on him. That's how food works. It has to be dead before we can eat it. Charles Simeon said it this way. The food of which Jesus spoke was not to nourish life, but to give it. And not to the body, but to the soul. And not of one people only, but of the whole world. And not for a few years, but forever and ever. Now let's take a look at the disciples' response. After hearing this amazing sermon that Jesus spoke, the first words that come out of their mouth is, that's too hard. In verse 60, many of the disciples hear these words and they grumble amongst themselves and they say to one another, this is a hard saying. Who could listen to it? What's too hard? I had to ask myself that question. What about Christ's word was difficult for them? Is it too hard to understand? Is it too hard to believe? No, I think what they were struggling with is it was too hard to accept. I think it's safe to say that there's a certain amount of depth and mystery in Christ's words that sometimes do make it difficult to understand them. But that's not what they were struggling with. They were struggling with the words that they did understand. You see, salvation isn't a question of intelligence, but a question of faith. Now, the disciples in verse 60 aren't the 12 that we're most uh, familiar with. Uh, We'll take a look at their response in just a minute. These are the false disciples. Remember in the beginning I said there's two groups. These are our false disciples. Disciple is just a word that's used to describe someone who follows someone else. And so we know that as Jesus went from town to town... Uh, performing signs, there's people that followed him from town to town. And so they were referred to as disciples as well. What we'll see is that true and false disciples can look very similar on the outside. And the only way to distinguish between those who are true and those who are false is by their faith, whether they believe or not. Now, if we left the distinction there, it still would be unclear. These false disciples could say that they believed in Jesus, right? They saw him. They believed that he was real. They thought well of him and believed that he was powerful. Now, is that all it takes to be a true follower of Christ? If so, then why are they marked by unbelief? Why did they turn back and no longer walk with him, as our text says? It's because they didn't believe his words. Now, what about the message was hard to accept? They heard his words, but they wouldn't believe them. They would not accept that he is the only way, the only one who could give life. How dare he be so ignorant and narrow-minded? How dare he make such a claim? Haven't you heard that before? Maybe you yourself have thought that? The message is hard to accept because in doing so, one must deny themselves. One has to acknowledge that they need help, that they're not as smart or as good as they like to think that they are. Now the words that Jesus spoke then are the same words he speaks today. And sadly, he gets the same response today when he claims to be the only food that can satisfy a man's soul. You see, no one has a problem with Jesus. He's actually very popular, both then and today, until he speaks. 
Jews believed that he was a great teacher and a miracle worker. Muslims believed that he was a great prophet and born of a virgin. Hindus believed that he was a holy man and a god. And Buddhists believed that he was an enlightened man. The problem is that none of these religions believe in the claims that he made about himself. You see, people are generally pleased with the person of Jesus and are captivated by his works and his stories. But as soon as he opens his mouth and makes commands and demands, they become very angry. They become offended. John MacArthur says it this way, The key to false discipleship is this, to accept the person of Christ, but reject his words. In contrast, the mark of a true disciple is that they believe and obey the words of Christ. Jesus was recorded saying this many times. John chapter 8, verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In John chapter 14, verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me and keeps my word, and my Father will love him. He will come to him and make our home with him. Now whoever does not love me does not keep my words. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's look together at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Will you also go away? Jesus asks. And Peter quickly responds, where else would we go? Jesus is asking if his claims are too big for him to believe. If what he demands from his followers is too much to ask. I love Peter's response. It's perfect. We know that Peter is usually quick to respond and many times he doesn't get it right. But he gets, he gets it right this time. Where else would we go, he says. His response makes it seem that he's considered all the other options. He knows and maybe has tested that the world has nothing to offer. You alone have the words of eternal life, he says. Listen to this. Jesus speaks life-giving words. And if we believe his words, we are given life. I'm going to say that again. Jesus speaks life-giving words, and if we believe his words, we are given life. If you believe his word, you are a true disciple. The false believer is proud and unwilling to bow before Christ. The true believer is humble and recognizes their need for a Savior. The false believer hears the hard words of Christ and is angered. The true believer hears the hard words of Christ and receives them because they know that they're true. 
False believers look the part and play the part. But when the line is drawn and they must make a choice, they'll always choose themselves. That's why Judas Iscariot is highlighted in this text. I know many got together and were studying this passage in preparation for this morning. Maybe wondered, why, why are they talking about Judas? Where did that come from? If there was ever a person who looked like they're a believer, but were not, it was Judas. He was a false disciple. The question for us this morning is the same question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Do you believe in my words? Do you believe that I'm the one sent from heaven? Will you also leave? How will we respond to his words? Now what Jesus claims is who he is. To reject his words is to reject Christ himself. And we see this in the scriptures. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning when God created everything, he spoke it into, his, into existence by his word. And in Deuteronomy, we, we just read that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And in John, we learn that the word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's Jesus. God sent his son so that we, mean, that we may know who he is. And this is what we understand of the gospel. We know that God has created us to be holy as he is holy, but we failed. We sinned against this holy God, and we were separated from him, and not only separated, but condemned to die and fall under his wrath. There's punishment for this sin. And if God didn't punish us, he wouldn't be just, he wouldn't be righteous. What Christ has done, and this is what he's telling the people, is if you believe in me that I am the one that God has sent, you will live. Christ will die in your place. Christ has died in your place. And because Jesus was the perfect man, God accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. And if you believe this message and respond in faith, because it demands a response, repent of your sins and you will be saved. What's wonderful is that there's not a, a moment at the end of the service when someone has to do this or can do this. This is a faith response that can be done right now if you believe in the gospel and the work of Christ. Now in a room this size, I, I'm sure we'd find the same two groups of people that we read about. False disciples and true disciples. And sadly, I trust that there are many here this morning that are false disciples. You like to come to church? The music is good. The people are nice. The community is special. But when you listen to the sermon and hear the words of Jesus, you only accept the parts you want. You may even think that you're a true disciple. But if you don't deny yourself and believe in his word, you are not a true follower of Christ. I'm reminded of my brother Fountain's testimony. Uh, he's a member here at Redeemer, and he shared this with me. He told me that he always thought he was a Christian. 
He grew up in a Christian home. He thought he understood the Bible, he, the gospel. He, he would even have said that he believes in Jesus until someone confronted him and told him that you're not a Christian. His testimony goes that he was very upset this person didn't even know who he is for him to make such a claim that he's not a Christian. How dare this person say those words to him? And uh, it seems that he was upset, and I would think rightfully so, uh, especially if he thought he was a Christian. He spoke to his father on the phone, and his, his dad could tell that he was upset. He said, what's, what's going on? I'm embellishing some, I think, because I don't remember the exact testimony or at least exactly how it went. But his father asked him. He knew something was wrong, and, and Fountain said, this boy at school told me that I'm not a Christian. He doesn't even know me. And his father said, well, maybe you're not a Christian. Fountain eventually met up with this person, who's also a member here at Redeemer, and began to read God's word, and he was convicted of his sin, and he realized that he wasn't a Christian. By believing in God's word, he now has life. To those who are believers in the room, sorry, to those who are not believers in the room, we're so glad that you're here. My aim is not to point you out and to say, you're a false disciple, you're not welcome here. My hope and my plea is that you believe in Christ and his word. Don't live for food that perishes. Stop playing the part and put your faith and trust in Christ or else you will die. Consider the words of Christ and respond as Peter did. Where else would you go? This world has nothing to offer. Don't believe the lie that you come to Jesus to get things. Listen to this quote about salvation. Salvation is not something Jesus gives. Salvation is something he is. One does not receive salvation from Jesus. You and I receive him, the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he is. And in receiving him, we receive salvation, redemption, and eternal life. And now to the believer my brothers and sisters, to whom are we listening? Are we regularly listening to God's word and responding in faith? What words are we speaking to one another? Are we encouraging one another to believe on Christ for all of our needs? Find your hope in him today and not just tomorrow. Because of the cares of the world will come and tempt you to leave. You might not be tempted right now to depart from the faith, but be certain that you will. It might be in the university classroom where no one else proclaims Christ or is a believer. You might be tempted to deny your faith. It might be at work. You've been praying and you might finally get this promotion that you've been hoping for. If only you would deny your faith in Christ. You know, I'm so thankful for the freedom that we have in this country, and usually I'm actually very impressed and surprised by it. So thankful for it, but what if that was taken away? Would you still believe? Would we still gather at the risk of losing everything, even our lives? May we, like Peter, look at the world and know that she has nothing to offer us. May we look upon Christ and know that he is the one who has been sent from heaven. May we abide in Christ and his word, that we would live for eternity today. Let's pray.
And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to give us life, though none of us deserve it. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your word, you would work in every heart that's listening this morning. We know that none can come to you unless you draw them. And so please, Father, draw your children to yourself. Would you break down the stubbornness of some in this room that they may see your face? Would you comfort those that need comfort this morning? Would you convict us of our sin that we would call on you? Lord God, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.